We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We've got another World Championship bonus pod for you, and what a World Championship it's been. Uh, we've got a great guest joining us, who I will introduce in a few minutes, but I just wanted to go through a through things, few things and catch you all up on the match. Number one, as always, I'd like to thank our presenting chess education sponsors, Chessable, which, of course, has move trainer technology, help you learn opening sequences, tactical patterns. It cannot necessarily help prevent you from having a uh, blunder in a critical game, as we saw in the World Championship. But hey, that's something we all have to deal with. But in any event, Chessable's got new courses, including a Nimzo Indian course by popular streamer GM Benjamin Bach and a spicy modern ready course from the Ginger GM and I am Richard Palliser. You can also check out my favorite courses with descriptions of the courses on a page linked in the show. It also has rating guidelines. Uh, the next thing I wanted to mention was I wanted to issue a correction. On the last pod, I kept saying over and over again that there were five wins in a row in the match. At the time, it was after round nine. There had been five decisive games in total, but only four wins in a row. So my apologies for the mistake. As you guys may recall, in in one of the games, it looked like Ding was going to win, and he ended up drawing. I believe it was game eight. So I had already counted that as five wins. Uh, I also wanted to mention on the programming front, front, so we'll be speaking with our guest, Alex Lenderman, about the match today. This obviously is the last bonus pod. And then when the match is over, I will be interviewing Grandmaster Erwin Lamie for a world championship matchup. Erwin, of course, is a popular chessable author, a trainer who has worked with world champion Veselin Tapalov and Anish Giri. And normally, Perpetual Chess is released every Tuesday morning, early morning here in the U.S., but I am recording that interview with Erwin on Monday, so there's a small chance the podcast will be a day or so late. But after today's pod, we will have one more wrapping up the World Championship before we get back to our sort of regular Tuesday programming. Last but not least, before we introduce our guest, I wanted to do a quick rundown on what has happened since we last joined you. I think a lot of you are probably watching the games as they go or at minimum watching some video recaps. But just to quickly jog your memory. Um, so, of course, we're tied with one game to go. One more classical game awaits us on Saturday, April 29th. Ding will have the white pieces. And uh, 
what has happened since last um, pod is game 10, Ding was white. He played the English as I am Andres Toth predicted last week. Ding got a tiny edge, but Nepo comfortably held the end game. So it was a draw. Game 11 was kind of the only snoozer in my mind uh, in the whole match. I actually, when I woke up, the game was already over. Um, it was a Roy Lopez main line, rapid liquidation of a bunch of pieces. So it went to an equal ending, and that one was done early. Game 12, we will be discussing plenty with our guest. Uh, that was Wednesday's game, one for the ages. It was a Kali, which I now know is pronounced call system. Uh, a double-edged affair. Uh, Nepo had the upper hand out of the opening. He was playing quite quite well. And then it unraveled kind of slowly and then all at once, punctuated by one of the biggest and potentially most consequential blunders in world championship history with uh, 34F5. Uh, Ding capitalized quickly and Nepo sat there for about 15, 20 minutes, playing a few more moves as he kind of talked to himself and processed what had just happened. It was a bit painful to watch and a uh, critical moment for sure. Uh, the game... So people weren't sure if Nepo would even be able to recover from that heading into today's game, Thursday's game. And that game recently concluded as we recorded this. Um, and it was another classical Roy Lopez. Ding actually had a small edge out of the opening um, as black. Uh, then uh, he he made a few inaccuracies and Nepo gained the upper hand. Ding sacked an exchange. Um, Nepo still retained a small edge heading into the end game, but the game headed towards a repetition in a fairly well-played game. So Nepo did manage to stabilize things. And that's where we are as we await game 14 Saturday, the last classical game. Also wanted to quickly review the tiebreak rules. Um, so there's a four-game rapid playoff that will take place Sunday if necessary. 25 moves per player with a 10-second increment. Um, they draw to decide who gets white. If there's still a tie after those four games, they go to a two-game blitz playoff, five minutes with a three-second increment. Um, and if there's still a tie, they do another two-game blitz playoff. And if still tied, um, they play three plus two games until there's a winner. So a lot of potential drama could be coming. We will see what happens. Uh, and that should catch you all up on what has happened and what may happen. So I appreciate our guest sitting here while I go through this. And now I would like to introduce him. So our guest was the world youth champion under age 16 in 2005, the 2015 world open champion, 2011 U.S. Open champion, many time U.S. championship participant He's played in the FIDE World Cup peak rating of FIDE 2654, which means he's been a FIDE top 100 player in the world. He was also a guest on this podcast way back in 2017. So we've been overdue to catch up and we corresponded a bit about this match. And then I realized that that he would be a great person to talk about it. So let's welcome back Grandmaster Alex Lenderman to the show. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, of course. Uh, yeah. And what a match it has been, you know. Yeah, just so just. Just an incredible match, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it, Alex. But let's start with what I consider just the biggest moment. I mean, I spent last night just watching recap after recap of Game 12 just because I find it psychologically fascinating, and obviously it was an interesting game on top of that. Um, Alex, to reach the level that you have in chess, you've obviously suffered some setbacks on the way. Um, if if you No one can put themselves in the shoes of someone playing for a world championship, but... Um, 
going through what Nepo must have gone through in the past 24 hours, how would you even approach a game like game 13, which he seems to have done something effective because he played well today? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's obviously very tough. Um, I mean, honestly speaking, recovering from very difficult losses has always been uh, quite a challenge for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in this match, um, I would say the first six six games, everything was kind of going according to normal. I mean, they were fighting games, but usually the side who would win, they would outplay the other side, right? So it wouldn't be anything extraordinary. I mean, it was a normal fighting match. And then, of course, game seven happened where, you know, as we know, Ding kind of froze in the end, right? His nerves, I guess, gave out on him and he lost a game where he kind of had control over the game, most of it. And should definitely have not have lost. And at that time, I dared to mentally to myself predicted that the match is probably over because I thought to overcome after this game seven would take a super, super human effort. I mean, I didn't think it's like 100% over, but I thought to recover from that would require such, such effort that um, it seemed almost impossible. And then game eight kind of verified it to me because game eight it was uh where i think ding tried to compensate for the time usage and then of course he um, did not spend enough time at some critical moments when he was about to win right but that sometimes happens i know it happens to me sometimes when i lose because of a certain way i try to then overcompensate and as often happens when you're slumping it also ends up backfiring right so you're kind of like stuck in between which is uh which is the worst. And I thought, okay, at that point, um, it seemed over. I mean, even Levon Aronian said that it seemed unlikely that um, Ding would be able to overcome. And, but then, of course, game 12 happened, right? So after that, after game, after what I saw in game 12, I'm not going to dare try to predict another big match or anything like that, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way. And as devastating as ding's blunder was in game seven as you alluded to um fabiano pointed out i believe it was on c squared it might have been in the broadcast that that was somewhat more understandable because ding was in time trouble now obviously that's a bit of a self-inflicted wound if you find yourself in time trouble it's not like it was just something you know set down upon you but nonetheless it's pretty common to see blunders and even what might be termed uncharacteristic blunders in time trouble but Nepo, if anything, his blunder yesterday, as again, to quote Fabiano, he said, this is not a chess mistake. This is a psychological issue because there's there was no time trouble. If anything, Nepo was playing too fast. Um, so does, does that frame your thinking going forward? Like to me, I felt like Ding maybe had a better chance of recovering because this is the kind of mistake you make all the time. Whereas Nepo's, I felt like was sort of... Um, a, an original mistake yeah well i yeah it's, it's it's hard to say yeah i mean at this point they all had to recover off of like many ups and downs right so at this point whoever wins the match you know it will will kind of be like a hero right because they would have yeah. had to from many really really difficult moments um especially game seven and 12 right game seven and eight for ding basically where ding you know did not win game eight that's also you know, maybe arguably even tougher than, you know, losing game seven. And then Nepo, if he wins, he would have to overcome from game 12, where he pretty much 
was a few moves away maybe from completely already wrapping the match to then suddenly, you know, having to win the match all over again, right? And that's just really tough. But um, but that's the thing, though, right? I think uh, that's why they're the very top also, that they're mentally also much stronger, right? And I think uh, in order to be the very top player, you have to be able to have a short memory, right? And I think that's that goes not just for chess, but for other sports as well, because no matter um, how good you are and how in any sport, you're going to have at some point some excruciating losses, right? Either as a team or individually. And uh, it's very important to be able to recover from it and somehow find some positives even in any negative situation and also keep things in perspective that as painful as it is there are maybe worse things that could happen in life than even losing a chess game you know or even losing a match but certainly for me now going forward it's like if people can if the if people can overcome from losses in the world championship match then certainly like why can't i be able to recover from a difficult loss in a lesser tournament or let alone my student or something like that right so i think for me it's a good reminder that you know it's just it's all about mental toughness mental fortitude um and by the way i think uh game seven i think it was psychological um because okay first of all the time usage you know was a little bit psychological that he got in the time pressure but then it's also that letting up to the blunder right he had five minutes and then he used like four minutes right so he just froze out of nowhere and that's not the moment where he blundered he blundered like the very next moment right so it was more like he froze right something just happened uh all of a sudden which was a little bit hard to to explain right like i think the pressure just got to him at that moment so yeah it's um it was very tough and i thought okay since the it's an even match you know when you you know lose a match game like that in a close match i thought it's going to be over but of course um yeah then game 12 happened and now okay it's just impossible to predict and probably after that i don't know if i'll ever dare to even i didn't predict anything publicly but i told a couple of my friends and students that okay i thought after game seven it's over but then of course and an erroneous said that in public he also believed that but yeah i guess it's it's very hard to predict things right because we're all human we're all susceptible to brilliancies but then also you know sudden mental lapses like for example what nepo had in game 12 right so it's just super hard to predict anything we're not god and we just don't know we human are human is weak and we just don't know what's really happening what's going to happen right so i think it's not my place to try to predict anything anymore yeah well said i mean anyone who's tried to make predictions in this match uh as um has had their work cut out for them i mean and you mentioned comparing it to sports one thing one thought that crossed my mind like often if if whether you're following a sporting event where these days they have like live betting um or you can just follow some sort of like um what like an equity tracker basically where they keep track of your percentage of winning and if they had been keeping track of Nepo's percentage of winning the match, I mean, if you look at the models of someone like chess goals or chess by the numbers, just going in to game 12, it was about like 75 to 80%. And then you reach a position where he's three points better up a clear pawn. If he wins this game, all he needs to do is draw one of the two remaining games. I mean, 
if you were going to bet on Ding to win the world championship and there were a live market, it would have been, I think, like a hundred to one at least. Like, I mean, there it just seemed impossible because even if Nepo slipped and drew, uh, he would have been in a commanding position. Um, but he slipped and obviously blundered and lost. And here we are with a new match. So as you say, despite a lot of, I don't know if criticism is the right word, but a lot of people are certainly noticing that players are making more mistakes than we've seen in recent world championships. But I do think your point that these players are still to be commended is valid because um, it's tough. I mean, it's it's a lot of eyeballs on you. Uh, the biggest event of your life or for Nepo, at least the co-biggest event of his life. And uh, Chess.com Live's YouTube channel had a video of the players uh, going into the elevator. It was actually just a uh, ding and rapport um, after the game yesterday. And you can just really get a sense for what a fishbowl it is. And I think being in a place like Astana, as I talked about in the first bonus pod with uh, with my client, like, I feel like it might sort of um, intensify that because you can't escape to a city where you see the, I mean, you are in a city, but it's not like London where the world goes on without you. I mean, I feel like it's just this very contained space where you feel like the whole world is watching you. So all the more commendable that both players have shown, despite their mistakes, such resilience. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's quite incredible. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with more World Championship Talk from Grandmaster Alex Lenderman. And we are back. By the way, one thing I figured I'll, I'll make a note of, since um, you have me on the podcast now, is that uh, Game 12, um, I don't think anybody has mentioned that, or at least I haven't heard yet. Um, but um, they actually followed one of my games. Oh, really? In, in Game 12. Um, and um, I don't know if the players knew about that, but uh, basically uh, in 2021 US Championship, I was paired, I was playing Dan and Arditsky with Black in, in Round 4. And... Uh, I remember Daniel Narditsky in round one won a very nice game against Jeffrey Shong with this call system, E3, C5, and Knight BD2, specifically that line. And so I thought, okay, maybe he'll try it again. And uh, I remember the way I prepared for that game is I just let the engine run for a while on that position after C5, Knight BD2. And it came up with the CD, ED, Queen, C7. And I was like, oh, wow, this is nice. You know, simple Carl's bad simple to play something that will suit me and maybe and also hasn't really been played that much and so i played the cd the queen c7 um and uh, and then the only difference was daniel on move uh six he played bishop d3 um whereas ding played c3 and that's where nepo started to think for the first time after the move c3 so i was wondering if uh, they have actually studied this game you know that would be curious but i guess for me it's a little bit of an honor if people in the world championship match are actually looking at my games sometimes uh because i was very happy with that game i was a very good game one of my few good games i've played in my chess career and uh, i guess i was also happy with that opening idea and then of course happy that a few years later people are you know using that idea 
Yeah, that must be a good feeling. And Alex, I'm sure you've played more than a couple good games in your career. Now, let me ask you again, we are on video, but we're not going to call up a chessboard. So we don't want to go too deep in the weeds. But a couple people in that game highlighted the Bishop D7 move that Nepo played in the opening. Uh, Grandmaster Peter Hein Nielsen uh, called it one of the strangest opening moves he's ever seen in a world championship. Um, what was your reaction uh, to it? Well, I didn't really watch it live, right? Because it's 5 a.m. I saw it after the fact. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess b because after Bishop D3, uh, what Daniel played, I played Knight C6. And then, of course, Bishop B5 doesn't make so much sense after just going Bishop D3. Although that's what Daniel did a few moves later anyway. And and then I kind of got a good position. Um, but um, Dane played C3. And I guess here... Nepo might have thought knight c6, bishop b5 is slightly annoying, although probably knight c6 is still best. I don't even remember what exactly my preparation was, whether it was knight c6 or bishop g4, but I'm quite sure that bishop d7 wasn't in my plans. Um, but of course, it's different because I have just looked at that position, and of course, for Nepo, he has to look at like a bunch of things, right? So it would be very hard to zone in on one specific aspect when Ding is literally playing anything under the sun. So, you know, it's Bishop D7. I guess it's an interesting move. It has its idea to try to play Knight C6 and so on and so forth. But I guess he really wanted to eventually go Bishop G4 under better circumstances. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's not the most accurate move. But anyway, Ding, it seemed like, wasn't able to, you know, really punish it. and you know nepo quickly got a good position anyway so yeah yeah and nepo to to what you were saying earlier um wondering if they'd seen your game when nepo was asked in the press conference after that game if he was surprised by the opening choice he said no so uh maybe, maybe he had taken a look at it and it does seem like ding has just uh um centered in on picking openings that are basically anything but main lines. Uh, do you expect a deviation from that in game 14? Dare you venture any specific predictions? Like, I can't believe he hasn't even tried the Catalan. Uh, well, I, I think he knows that uh, Nepo's preparation is just super good with all the best seconds, all the best computers and stuff. So I think he just decided to go for the strategy with White to just keep going for surprises. And especially in the last few games, he kind of was in a must-win. Like, he usually has to, like, because what would happen is he would often lose with black and he would have to then uh, play catch up with white, right? So it would make sense at some point that Ding would um, take a little bit more risks just to try to get a game rather than risk the uh, the game kind of going into forcing waters where maybe white would be a little bit better. But it's a position that, you know, if you study until move 25 to move 30, you'll be able to make a draw relatively easily, especially in a classical game. And I think the reason Nepo said he wasn't surprised because he realized that, you know, he already expects to be surprised, right? By uh, in every game when he's black, especially. So there's, uh, you know, at that point, like nothing will like be so out of the ordinary. Like after you face this H3 idea in game two, then okay after that like nothing after that is like would seem that out of the ordinary and it doesn't seem like it should be super surprising so i think that's why he said he wasn't surprised um but of course 
I doubt that he would like specifically zone in on every little idea. I mean, he would kind of know the general gist of, you know, each of these sidelines, but I doubt he would, let's say, specifically like looked at this exact thing right before the game, right? Or something like that, right? Yeah. If, if that makes sense. It does. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to predict like some sort of like ready Zuckertor night F3, E3, B3 thing. Or um, or maybe he'll go um, not not the Trumpovsky, D4, knight F3, bishop G5. I'm drawing a blank on what that's called. I think it's also possible that Ding might just play something very risk averse. And, uh, you know, because this game, it's not a must win anymore. And you might not want to go all out. And um, he might think his chances in Rapid are pretty good. I mean, he did. He was like, I think, the only one who beat Magnus in the Rapid playoff. So um, in 2019, Singled Cup, I think it was, uh, or 2018, I don't remember. But um, I think Ding has a lot of confidence in his Rapid uh, and Blitz skills. So, I mean, it's also quite possible that uh, Ding will just play something very solid and try to make a draw like uh, Sergei Karyak, sorry, like Magnus did against Sergei in the last game and game 12 and, and their match and just uh, take it to the playoffs. So, I don't know. It's hard to predict. It's, um, but it's quite possible that uh, there won't be much of a game. I mean, at least I don't expect Ding to take too many big risks anymore. Because I think at this point he thinks that get even getting into the rapid playoffs is already a huge success after having, you know, uh, having after what happened early on. But we'll see. It's 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 again. It's it's very hard to predict for sure, right? I think it depends on. How confident he is in, in some ideas that he might have, right? But I doubt there will be something very weird like a Cole or like this H3 or something like that, where he where it would really be a three result game. Like I, somehow I don't think that will happen. But okay, I'll, I've been wrong before in this match, so I could be wrong again. Yeah, we all have. By the way, it was the the Tory attack that I was trying to think of. And uh, given given what you've said, Alex, um, about us being wrong i mean inevitably the way this match has gone um and you being done making predictions nonetheless i have to ask uh going into this match if i had said it's going to go to a rapid tie break uh who would you have said would be the favorite in rapid in particular um i'm guessing 50 50 completely i i thought originally i guess nepo i thought 55 45 60 40 something like that but yeah i think if it if it would get to uh Blitz or rapid, I think it's really just 50 50. Like it's okay. just the coin toss. Whoever is in, ha, has a better day that day, whoever has better nerves and things like that. Very random, I think. Yeah. Well, I hope that Ding tries, you know, doesn't just mail it in for his last white. I hope he doesn't like waste it as an opportunity. I get what you're saying about you don't necessarily want to invite something double edged. Um, but one question I had, Alex, is. So obviously nerves have played a great factor in this match, possibly escalating as the match goes on, given what happened in game 12. Uh, one of the things that Nepo came under criticism for in game 12 was not managing his time well. He's, of course, long had a reputation for um, playing a bit impulsively at times. Um, and certainly that uh, came to the fore yesterday as it seemed um he he spent moves on he spent some time on some sort of basic moves, but then he would play very quickly. He spent three minutes on the or less than three minutes on the decisive 
blunder. I'm curious if you think that in these rapid games where you can't think, um, is there a possibility that maybe that would help the nerves go away? Well, I think it can go both ways. You can also argue that like when you don't cannot think too long, then you also will not get as much into time pressure like dings sometimes have been, right? You cannot be as much of a perfectionist, right? So it's yeah, I think it can go both ways. Um, I know that there's some really big time pressure addicts who are exceptionally good at um, rapid and blitz because they they they're not able to think for too long, right? And sometimes the thinking too long could be a little bit of a disadvantage in long games because people who are time pressure addicts they'll find a way to spend that time anyway, right? Like if uh, right. <laughs> they'll they'll get into time pressure on rapid blitz or classical, even if they get five hours for the game, they'll find a way to get into time pressure. Right? It's just the it's just the mentality, right? It's just the their approach. Like they try to be perfectionist for until they they can, right? And um but yeah, I think you're right. It's it definitely nerves and I think when you have some natural slight weakness, then it starts to escalate a bit more when uh, nerves come into place, right? I know that for myself, like when I'm in, not in best shape for whatever reason, then whatever natural weaknesses I have, like if I'm in good form, I can mask my weaknesses, I think quite well. But if I'm not in good form, then I, you know, all the weaknesses I have, psychological or chest weaknesses, they really get quite unmasked, right? So I think it's uh, sometimes very useful to see people under, you know, uh, under these difficult conditions because then you get to see what what they truly are, right? Their natural self. I mean, even even that goes for life as well. Like if I have a bad day for whatever reason, um, I can unmask some of my negative sides of my personality, right? Whereas if I have, whereas if I'm in a good mood, I'm way less likely to, let's say, show my bad side, right? So I think that's, that's yeah, I mean, life and chess, it goes together in a way, right? It's just very difficult. But yeah. That's how it is. Well said. Well, Alex, on a related note, we have a question from a Patreon supporter of the podcast. He also was a guest of the podcast, and you recently played him. This is uh, Dr. Joel Sneed, who uh, you got to play in uh, a simul at the Marshall Chess Club. Right. recently. Um, and Dr. Sneed, if listeners haven't heard my interview with him and haven't read his book, his uh, collaboration with uh, Grandmaster Boris Golko, uh, Analyzing the Chess Mind, now is as good a time as any as we analyze these chess minds. And here is uh, Dr. Sneed's question. Joel asks, he says, uh, it seems to him that with all the back and forth going on in the match that the players have been trading big mistakes and that pressure and psychology are wreaking havoc on them. He've noticed in his own games that one of his big struggles is evaluating positions negatively and then making a desperate move because he perceives a position to be lost when in reality it might be equal or only slightly worse. Do you think this is something that could be happening in the match? And can you offer any advice about evaluating positions more objectively? And Joel says, thanks for the game Tuesday night at the Marshall. Yeah, my pleasure. It was great meeting you, Mr. S uh, Dr. Sneed and um you know, I think you gave a great speech uh, at the club. I think you, you touched on a lot of moments that I struggle with myself. Um, yeah, as for the games, okay, I think uh, game seven, uh, which Ding lost, you know, this collapse that he had in time pressure, that I think uh, has to do with the fact that he thought his position was bad, right? He under-evaluated because I think he's saying that 
when his position was still fine, maybe even better, he was saying that how if he doesn't do anything, he's going to be lost. Like he, I think that those were like his words or something like that, yeah. which is why he ventured into something drastic, which of course he was in time pressure, so he couldn't calculate and he just uh, collapsed the game in a couple of moves because of that, right? So I think it was mostly game seven where something like that happened where, I mean, I guess Nepo, if anything, he suffers from the opposite problem. Like I think he's too much of an optimist. Like sometimes he thinks that his position is usually better than than it is right and you can see and then the variations he gives and things like that i mean even hikaru nakamura mentions that like he's just too much of an optimist so i think it's actually an interesting clash where maybe ding is a little bit more of a pessimist in his evaluation and nepo is a bit of an optimist although in game 12 i wouldn't say that ding was a necessarily a pessimist i mean he did say that um he thought was he was better in the early part of the game when in fact he was probably never better right he was probably worse so yeah i think it's just chess is very hard i mean we we often just miss evaluate positions because chess is hard and we're not 3500 stockfish like hikaru likes mm. to say right? so it's uh chess is a very hard game but i think in general i guess the best advice i can give is we have to kind of know where we stand and that so there's like um let's say in a scale of one to 10, um, we have to know about ourselves. Are we more of an optimist in general or are we more of a pessimist? So for example, I know about myself that I have a problem that I'm too glass half empty, right? I tend to think, see things in a negative light. I, I catastrophize a lot and things like that, right? It's just my problem. I mean, I have, uh, that's how I've kind of been raised, grew up and that's how I am naturally. So I know that for myself, if I'm like thinking my position is worse, then I guess what I should do is I should force myself to become more positive, right? I should try to, if I'm think I'm, if I'm seeing things too negatively, I have to try to sway in the more positive direction. I have, I have to see that, okay, this is the positive part. I have to like really struggle to look for those positives, right? And if you're a, an optimist, right? If you find yourself to be an optimist, then it's the other way around, right? I guess then you have to put in the effort to see some dangers in some situations and things like that to not make reckless decisions, right? And things like that. So I think it's a, it's always the question of balance. I think the balance is the key. Like I think being too much of an optimist is bad and being too much of a pessimist is bad, right? I think it's the key is to find that balance, get to like a five, you know, uh, and then kind of go from there. But uh, yeah, it's a constant struggle, of course. It's really not not easy, right? It takes a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of self-reflecting and, uh, and things like that. Um, and I know it's a, definitely a struggle for me, not just in chess, but especially in, in life. Um, you know, in my coaching career, it's definitely a, a struggle. I mean, the more, I, the more I'm experiencing, the more, let's say, I do coaching, the more I'm realizing how much of a struggle it is dealing with like different kinds of students personalities adults kids you know and uh, you know everybody has their own psychological strengths and weaknesses as well so yeah i mean i'm starting to realize that i can definitely relate to that and uh, definitely uh, i feel like i can learn a lot from dr sneed in the, in the future and hopefully uh, you know if i ever have some questions i'll be happy to ask him as well 
Yeah, I don't know if it's comforting or discomforting that someone like Dr. Sneed, for all of his domain knowledge, like still has the same struggles as the rest of us. And same. Well, actually, same... the thing is, it's like I say, sometimes the first key to success is being able to recognize struggles, right? If you think that you're perfect, that's you know that's a bad sign, right? Because none of us are, right? So I think the first step is, of course, recognizing the problems, that the, the difficulties, right? Because then that's the only chance you have have to be able to actually work through them right so i think and actually that's kind of the interesting thing about chess as well you often find that a 1200 uh, player will think that they're just like the best ever right they, they they think that they're really good they know the principle they know some basic things and they know some staff or gambit or something and they feel like okay they're unbeatable right and the only reason they lose is because of some crazy bad luck things like that but they might think that very often they're just the best player like they know everything about chess and they'll be happy to argue with grandmasters, right? And uh, whereas uh, the players who are higher level, the, the high, I guess it's the point is the higher, the bigger of an expert you become in some field, the, the more you start to realize that just how much you don't know, how much of unknown there is and how difficult actually the game of chess is, right? So I think that's, um, it's like this, not just in chess, but in every area like the closer you become to perfection the closer you get to like a very high level the more you realize how just how how much unknown there is right and i think that's very important to keep in perspective yeah well let me ask you alex if you were on nepo's team um coming off of game 12 uh, magnus of course after his loss to karyak and uh, when he was down a game with, I believe it was six games to go. Um, famously, it came it out four later. Games, four, four games to go. Four games to go, sorry. Famously, it came out later that he and his team that were there with him decided that they were just not going to think about chess and they got drunk that night and then just reset things. Uh, the only time that they say, the only time he's done that during a world championship match. Um, what would you have advised Nepo? I mean, obviously, whatever he did worked, but what would you have said to him coming into today? Well, I mean, it's hard to say if it, if it worked. I mean, I'm not sure how good of a game he played today, but okay, that's a different story. But yeah, I mean, at least he didn't fully collapse and it seemed like a normal game. Yeah, I think it's it's very individual. I don't really, it's very hard for me to say because I don't really know Nepo that well personally. So I'm not really sure how he likes to um you know alleviate stress and uh, things like that but i think in general yeah when you have such a heartbreaking loss yeah i think very often just uh completely forgetting about chess and you know completely thinking about something else that can be very useful i i think i've recently heard someone else talk about that as well i don't I forget who already but yeah just completely forgetting about chess and completely preoccupying yourself with the so oh yeah i think it was hikaru yeah i think it was hikaru i think he lost um his match i think he might have lost to wesley in the what's it called the american cup i think yeah he he was like he he won the his bracket and then he uh he had to play western elimination bracket and then wesley beat him so then they had to play again because uh, hikaru still had another life left and wesley uh you know Wesley was in the must win he had to win all his remaining matches and I think he said something about he just like went out with his friend I forget exactly what he said I think he's like said it in some recaps but 
he completely did not look at chess. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why he said that he did not want to do a recap that day after he lost because he just wanted to completely take his mind off of chess and he just completely did some other activity that evening right so to completely get his mind off and um and i think that's uh no that can be very helpful right because you know ultimately you know we are who we are right like whatever preparation we did before the tournament you're not likely going to be able to just cram something in last minute anyway right like usually tournaments are won before the tournament anyway and you have to trust that whatever work you've done before the tournament is good enough right and that and during the tournament it's more about you know managing nerves managing stress you know managing your routine you know making sure that you're in a good mindset right and you know and the key is to just optimize your performance right being put in the position to be able to play your your best chess right and uh, i think it's in general very smart approach um it's not something that's easy for me to do because i don't have that many other interests besides chess and i think that's somehow hard for me um but you know i also have friends who help me during those difficult moments right but um but yeah no it's it's i would say that's definitely the most probably one of the most challenging aspects of chess right and uh, one of the main reasons why i don't miss playing as much chess these days at least at a very high level just because of yeah if you play a top tournament you're obviously going to deal with difficult losses right and and even if it's not lost even sometimes dealing with wins could be difficult right because then you have this added pressure you know you start thinking oh i can actually win and i can actually do it and sometimes you know in a way you know dealing with the win is even harder right as you could see in this match the people who won very often would like lose the next game and not be able to play as well next game sometimes dealing with the win is even it's i think it's a very underestimated factor right but i think sometimes losing actually takes pressure off of you and winning you know gives you this added pressure added responsibility so in a way sometimes dealing with the win is even harder which i think very few people talk about but this also this kind of thing also exists so yeah there are definitely many dimensions of of psychology there yeah, it's fascinating, and it'll be fascinating to see. Uh, Alex, you mentioned some friends have helped you through. Um, is there any like particular bit of advice you got that you find yourself thinking about in those moments? Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's just it, the main thing is um, the main advice that I've been getting from like almost all my coaches and friends throughout my chess career is that you know that I should just absolutely try to get rid of negativity. You know, as soon as I have a negative thought cross my mind, I should try to get rid of it at all costs, right? Like it's something poisonous and redirect myself into some positive thought or some completely different thought altogether. It's very, very easy advice, but also very hard to, to do. But it takes a lot of discipline, really a lot of discipline. And, um, you know, that's what separates the champions from not quite champions, right, is that true discipline but um you know it's because there's always going to be negativity around right it's very easy to find negatives right but um but it's uh but it's also so important to not focus on it and not overemphasize it and i think my point is that in every negative situation there's always something positive you can find i'll give some like more extreme example not just in chess but something else 
like this war where you know Russia Ukraine it's obviously a horrible war but it's not World War three right? right so that's like very negative situation obviously goes without saying but you can look at it in a positive way that at least it's not World War three or like COVID, like horrible you know disease right they killed so many people like obviously created so much problems but it's not cholera it's not the uh, no black plague like it didn't destroy like one third of the population right like it could have been like it my point is it can always be worse right so in every bad situation you have to say it can always be worse like there's always a uh, room for so you know i think that's what my friends would you know always teach me my close friends they would you know send me that message that yeah as tough as something and then so then when you lose a chess game you're like okay well yeah i lost a tough chess game but like it can always be worse like i could have been in ukraine right now and dying i could have you know died early on from covid right like i could have a family member you know die from COVID. like it can always be worse you know it can really always be worse you know there's like you know most of the population in the world are like hungry you know it's like in these poor countries right like it can always be worse and i think that's um you know it's i think the point is you have to be grateful for uh you know for the fact for what we have right i think that's that's the best way to get rid of negativity is just be grateful for what we have right like i mean yes i mean you know you let's say i i was nepal right i lost this painful game well at least i'm in the world championship match right it could have been worse i could have been uh you know a struggling 2500 you know trying to make bread and give bread on the table trying to play win an open for one thousand dollars like it can always be worse but instead i'm a champion you know i have a chance to be a world champion still right like it can always be worse you know you, it, it's all about being grateful and i think uh i just have to give myself that reminder more often about being grateful for what we have and i think that that's the best way to deal with um, negativity in my opinion um, yeah gr great advice we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back with more world championship talk from grandmaster alex lenderman And we are back. And then one other thing I wondered about, I heard this year, Alex, uh, that Nepo said in his match against Magnus, he was having a great deal of trouble sleeping. Uh, and I had not heard that previously. And seeing what happened uh, in game 12 and yesterday as we record this as game i wondered maybe if that's an issue again um are you, are you able to sleep well during your big tournaments alex um well it depends i mean i i would say um it depends yeah i mean some usually yes but uh there there's definitely been times when i couldn't sleep very well i know that like for example if i have a nap in the in the middle of the day then sometimes i have a hard time falling asleep also if i deal with some stress not necessarily losing a game but let's say i have a very intense conversation with a friend about some really difficult topic like let's say COVID or something you know or i hear about something like that then it could be a bit hard for me to fall asleep the very next day i remember in the u.s championship in 2021 i was having like a great run great tournament five out of eight you know and then I had a conversation about COVID with my friends and like I heard all these stories and it was just, and I, I don't want to go in too much into the depth, but basically it was like so stressful for me that I somehow couldn't fall asleep until like 2 a.m., you know, and then I 
play this game against Sam Shanklin, and then I was not quite myself, and I missed like a key chance to have a to be able to play for a win. I made a draw, and then of course I lost to Fabio the next game. And it's like I feel like you know it was so close to me like winning that game and maybe treating the Fabio game differently, and, like then winning the U.S. Championship that year, right? Like it's always a question of like these little nuances. So yeah, I mean I would definitely say that sometimes I do have a hard time sleeping. I mean I know I remember. Sergey Karyakin said in some interview that he never has problems sleeping, and uh, yes, honestly, I'm a bit jealous of that. You know, huh. it's uh, you know, it's like I, I, I'm quite impressed about how people are are able to just stay calm, and because I I'm a, I, I'm an emotional guy, and I'm an emotional player. I mean, maybe I don't perceive that way in an interview. Of course, in an interview, I'm going to be you know professional and uh, you know try to say the best things, but. Sometimes in the heat of the moment, I can get also very emotional, and uh, that's always kind of been a little bit of my downfall. And uh, yeah, I'm very impressed about people who um, who who are not so emotional and they can sleep well and uh, you know put things behind them and things like that. And, uh, I guess the Sergey Karyakin is the one that comes to mind. Like he was always uh, so good under this heavy pressure, right? And you know, and I. You know, winning so many clutch turns, clutch games, right? When you played more actively, and you know that's like a that's like an example of somebody who's like really good with nerves. Maybe like the best one, like of all time, even arguably. Yeah, right? so it's, it's hard. It's hard to say. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, there are definitely some people who have that, right? Who can just like sleep, and um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's not as easy. As or also another problem for me is jet lag, right? Like if I. I remember, like when I played Isle of Man in 2019. That it's interesting enough. That was my last time I traveled out of the country before COVID. Um, you know, and then that tournament, I remember in the middle of the tournament, I was doing really well. I was excited, and I was jet lagged. And at some point, I just literally couldn't sleep. Like no matter what I did, I couldn't fall asleep until three, four a.m. And it just like it was just such a powerless feeling. It was just such a powerless feeling. And then my tournament just collapsed. I started so well, and then I just like couldn't win a single game after that and it just like i lost some games and uh, it was just devastating and that's when i started to feel like maybe maybe chess is just not meant for me like the top profession because yeah i mean my body just my nerves somehow just gave out on me and i just i just had no idea how i could fix it you know and uh, yeah so that was um that was a tough experience for me and uh, that's one of the reasons why i started to coach more and and play lesser stressful tournaments because yeah sometimes the sleeping part is just it's just so unhealthy to not be able to sleep normally just very frustrating yeah i mean yeah and seeing seeing the struggles you know early in the match i had highlighted the fact that you could really you could really sense things humanity as he had these moments like these time trouble induced mistakes and his sort of rare honesty in the interviews but yeah. then in yesterday in the game 12 game when nepo blundered and just sort of you could sit there and watch his process of grief unfold at the board as he as he cursed at himself and just shook his head and gesticulated to himself um so in that case i felt his humanity and what both of these players have done for me is they've really driven home just how mentally tough the top players are generally the fact that you don't see that more often because as uh as amateur players someone like i feel that 
I'm, I run that gamut of emotions almost every tournament, and it's actually rare that you see it at the top level. Right. Yeah. No. I I, I completely agree. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And again, it's like it has to do with like now. I think Ding is under a little bit less pressure because probably after game seven, eight, you know, he was thinking, okay, it's like there's not much to lose anymore, right? I mean, it's hard to win the match, so you know, you just do my best, you know, see what happens, and you kind of already play a little bit more with house money almost, right? And then Nepo is the one under a little bit of pressure. That's that's what I meant by saying that sometimes when you're winning, when you're leading, this ad, this gives you added pressure. Like I have actually, a, I have a very high level student who who basically has, I'm not going to mention the name, but um, basically they have that thing where, you know, recovering from losses is like very easy for them. But like when they're winning, it's actually the harder, you know, which... This is the first time I've heard that, but actually it makes it makes some sense. Because I guess if you cannot deal with losses at all, then you're probably not even gonna make it to the very top. Right? You're just not. I mean, you're you know, you're like if you're gonna have a meltdown after losses, you're gonna withdraw from tournaments early on. You're not you might not even get to two thousand, right? You're just gonna struggle, right? You're not gonna make it as a chess player, it's just gonna be too much. I mean, people who have really bad, you know. De dealing with losses they just they just don't make it as chess player, right so as so people who um make it to the very top you have you just have to be able to deal with losses like you get used to it you lose a lot of the games but dealing with winning at a very high level like you know the prospect of winning a world championship match something you've never dealt with before now that is stressful dealing with losses we've done it so many times right, right. but dealing with wins that actually is quite a challenging thing you know you you have this added pressure and uh, it's it's interesting it's really interesting yeah it, it's well said and just just hearing you disgusting makes me think I, I think you raise a good point in that he may feel despite nepo doing okay today he may feel psychologically more free because i had seen someone say online you know if ding loses this match he's gonna look back at moments like game seven and wonder what could have been now that's true but he's now been given a second life so he doesn't yeah. he doesn't need to look back at game seven anymore because yeah. he's basically controls his own destiny again he doesn't yeah. have to win with black or anything at this point um, yeah because if game seven would go differently then it's quite possible also like he would play a different opening and round like everything would just be different right so right. now he's fully back in the match and yeah there's no reason to reflect on game seven anymore right because everything would have just been completely different if game seven right but nepo if he doesn't win as of now unless some bigger blunder is coming down the pike from either player uh we'll definitely be thinking about game 12. yeah um, so alex as we look towards wrapping up i want to talk a little more chess improvement uh this has been fantastic and um yeah i'm just talking about it i'm so excited i haven't been waking up at 5 a.m new york time for these matches but i think for game 14 and for the playoff if it happens I will be. Now, one thing I wanted to address, Alex, is part of the reason uh, that, that I wanted to have you on is because you had mentioned that you disagreed with something that uh, the esteemed guest, I am Andres Toth, said in our last bonus pod related to chess improvement. So I give you the floor, Alex. Yeah, I think uh, as far as I, if I understood that correctly, Mr. Andres Toth, I think he mentioned something that he's never had a student who suffers from a problem of over calculating calculating and too much he said yeah calculating too much something like that yeah and i was thinking to myself wait a second that's uh what 
that's what most of it that's what like most of my students for let's say you know well let's just say range be maybe between 1800 and 2400 like very strong players but not uh gms yet i mean most of them suffer from exactly this problem right uh, you know i i, I um you know, like, because once you learn how to calculate, once you appreciate like the calculation skill, it becomes like attractive. You want to do it a lot. Like you want to try to calculate everything. But only there is one problem. Chess is a time game. You even in the classical game, like the longest time control you have, you have an average of three minutes per move. An average of three minutes per move only. Right. And usually in order to really calculate something deeply, it's like 10, 15 minutes usually, right? If it's like really a difficult position. So there's usually only going to be like a few critical moments during game when you really have to um, calculate uh, super deeply. And I think a lot of players, what they do is they try to calculate everything, right? They try to be a perfectionist, right? They try to calculate like a computer. And I just think this doesn't, it's not really feasible strategy, right? Like you're just not able to do that you know, unless you're playing correspondence chess or something, right? At some point, you have to be able to trust your intuition. Um, I mean, of course, you want to calculate the more important things like checks, captures, threats, like the really forcing moves, right? You know, you want to try to look at all the candidate moves and things like that. But um, trying to calculate absolutely everything, it's just not sustainable, not feasible, right? And I think you definitely... It's definitely a problem if you don't calculate enough, if you play too fast, but it's also a problem if you over-calculate, if you calculate too much, if you try to calculate everything, because it's just not sustainable. And then eventually then you will get into time pressure. You will often like start doubting yourself. You will not trust your gut sometimes, and you will end up even playing a worse move because of like being afraid of some goals, right? And then what ends up happening is that you often even end up getting into time pressure and then you simply don't have the opportunity to calculate. And then you you might lose the game because of that, right? You might blow the advantage. Um, and that's why you see so many uh, winning advantages get lost at the club level, but even at the high level, right? Like, I think it goes back to the same thing, like, you know, dealing with winning versus dealing with losing, actually, right? That's why it's like one of the harder things to do is to win a winning position, because when you know you're winning, Sometimes there's just a lot of pressure. You're like, oh, I better not mess it up. I better not mess it up. I better not mess it up. And then, yeah, you start thinking like in this negative way. And then that's when you mess it up, of course. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I think, yeah, that's that's one problem I think some people have, right? Like pressure in a winning position, like being, you know, nervous that, oh, I'm about to win and things like that. And then, you know, and then they they spoil it, right? Because they're not thinking on the chess anymore. They're thinking about how not to spoil the Right. Yeah. Well, that's what that's what I was going to say. And I mentioned you briefly in uh, email because I definitely fall in the category of thinking too much, but I'm not sure if I calculate too much. A lot of it is like internal monologue and stuff that is not particularly productive and I'm not proud of it. But I think if I and I, I'll interview you again sometime soon and I'll, I'm sure I'll interview Andres again sometime so we can ask for more info. But my guess is that's what Andres would say is not necessarily it's not it's not that they're not thinking and they're just moving impulsively it's that they're not thinking correctly yeah no i agree yeah i think a lot of our you know thinking about our games as i know that for me that's a problem like sometimes when i think i 
find myself not even thinking about chess. Right. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's which is very bad, of course, right? But I'm just gonna admit, yeah, that happens. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard. The mind is a very tricky thing. It like really wanders. It's very hard for the mind to concentrate on one specific task. And I think people who are able to do it, they they can really get to the very top. I mean, not necessarily in chess, but somewhere else. Like if you can actually concentrate fully on one specific task for like a long period of time that's a special talent in in itself right but but yeah i think the point is that it's important to identify which lines you have to calculate which ones you don't like most positions are judgmental positions in chess right they're not analytical positions where you have to necessarily purely calculate it out right like of course if you're dealing with a king and pawn end game or you're dealing with some crazy tactics Right. Okay. Then it's a calculatable analytical position, super critical, and you must calculate. Like if you don't calculate, you'll just make a mis- likely make a mistake. Like you cannot just trust your intuition and use a judgment call. Right. But let's say early on in like a call call system, some general judgment feeling. Right. If somebody is an amateur player, right, you know it's better for them to just you know trust their gut early on in the opening, and then maybe study the position deeper later on in analysis and then that way they save their time for later on i remember there was a very nice interview i listened to i think by avetsi Grigorian, a chess boot i think something like that yep. and uh this gm gave an interview and compared time with money so let's just say you have um 200 a week to spend on stuff right you're not gonna go ahead and spend a hundred dollars on the first day right what you want to do is you want to do the math. You want to say how much time, how much money I can spend an average per day, right? And um, the point is you want to have money saved in case you really need it for something really important, right? Rather than just, you know, having an expensive restaurant meal with some of your friends, having fun, which is a nice thing to do, but you're in a constraint, right? And you have to realize that and uh, play accordingly, right? Of course, it would be nice to be perfectionist and try to spend 20 minutes on every single move, but it's just not sustainable. You're just not able to do that, right, in chess. So I think it's important to realize that we're on our, we're under constraint and we want to do that math, right? Like, And I think, yeah, in that video, um, maybe I can email you later the link of that video. Yeah, sure. But, uh, but yeah, in that video, he explains that in a bit more deep detail, right? And um, yeah, I think, and another, by the way, speaking of uh, improvements, I didn't really mention that in any of my recent interviews, but there's one book that I would really love to recommend. And I think sure. it's like, it's most like a chess Bible. And I feel like it's a book that pretty much probably every chess player should read at least once, maybe more than once at some point. It's quite and a buildup. Go, go ahead. Is, and that book is Seven Deadly Chess Sins by Jonathan Ralston. Um, I, I really think that this is the, and I'll definitely read it soon at some point myself again. I've read it once a very long time ago before I was even a GM. I'll definitely read it again. I, I mean, I have a student who's, uh, who was struggling at around 2000 level for a while. And after he read the Rousen book, he like improved by over a hundred points. He like, he's a 2000 player and then he beat a 2350 player with block. And, but what's more important is if the results are not just random, like he's playing so much better and he's able to apply, like he's annotating his games and he's actually applying his le- these lessons that he learned from the Rousen. And he's making good moves based on the lessons he's learning from the book. 
right? So it's a book that can really resonate with a lot of people. I know another student who I gave to one of my friends, they also improved a lot after Rousen's book. Like they were stuck at a, you know, 2150 for like three years or something. And then they made master three tournaments after, you know, okay. reading that book. So I think the book is just extremely good. And now I'm recommending it to every single one of my students because I feel like I don't, I can't think of a single chess player who does not have some kind of psychological problem. I'm not talking about deep psychological problem, like dealing with losses or wins or sleeping or things like that. I'm talking more about specific chess psychological weakness, like let's say materialism or perfectionism or blinking or whatever else it may be, right? He talks about these seven deadly chess. I can, and that of course includes myself. Like I cannot think of a single chess player that does not have some kind of psychological um, shortcoming. And I heard like Levon Aronian really likes the book. Like, so it's, I think it's one of these universal books that could be good for a 1600 player, but it can also be really good for a 2600 player, right? So I think it's one of these books that it's, the way I see it, it's probably almost like a chess Bible. It just has so many really good lessons. And it's actually been written like 20 years ago or something. And it's, um, and I think it's still like one of the top, right? Like because all the other books, they're they'll be probably more tailored to towards let's say somebody's specific strengths and weaknesses, right? Like let's say somebody who is a sixteen hundred will obviously not want to read Varetsky, right? Uh, or or something like that, um, or some other or Agur or some other difficult book, right? Those books would be for at least masters or above, or maybe even grandmasters. Um, but this is the kind of book which you know, has lessons that can resonate to people of all sorts of levels, right? Um, I probably wouldn't recommend it to maybe very young kids, like, you know, kids under, like, children under, let's say, under 10 or something, because the book is, like, maybe a bit dense vocabulary-wise. It could be a bit difficult to understand. And maybe not people, like, at very low level, like below 1,500, maybe not. But I think, you know, maybe adults above, 15, 1600 and children that say above 1800 can definitely benefit from the book, you know, all the way till the very high level. So this is the book that I haven't really talked about in previous interviews. And I feel like I haven't given it justice. And I feel like now it deserves the justice that it should get. Okay, well said. And Alex, you're preaching to the choir. It's one of my all time favorite chess books, a couple points to highlight for listeners. Number one, uh, um, David Franklin, uh, Chicago-based lawyer and USCF expert, and I did a podcast reviewing it. So if you're not sure if it's for you, you can start by listening to that. I'll link to it. I interviewed Grandmaster Rousen in 2019. We talked about that book and about his memoir, The Moves That Matter. Um, and of course, it's available on Chessable. want to point out, and last thing I want to mention, I know we've got a lot of people who've gotten into chess in the last few years. And if you play primarily online, if you've never played an over-the-board tournament, you may not be able to relate to the book as much. Because one thing I noticed when I reread it for that podcast, Alex, is how much of it is about that sort of internal struggle that you go through sitting at the board. And obviously, people are making immense strides learning the game online. But in my experience, that hasn't mimicked the feeling of tension. So they may find it a little too deep in the weeds. I'm not sure. But some, but obviously, it's one of my all-time favorite books. So uh, echo your recommendation for sure, Alex. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and um, I feel like it's uh, it's uh, if it can make a big difference in like some of my 
students and some of my friends I know, I feel like it can make a big difference in, in a lot of people. So definitely at least once I would recommend almost everybody to try to read that book. And oh. uh, if you have a hard time understanding and maybe go back to reading it like one or two years later when you're a bit older or a stronger player, you know, or things like yeah. that. A good book to really struggle through. It, it's one of these books that in order, I think, to get a lot out of it, you have to really struggle through that book. But mm -hmm. that's ultimately how chess is. Um, you know, in order to improve on chess, at some point you have to really struggle through it, right? And I think that's that's the thing that is very hard for many people, right? Like to go that extra mile, right? And uh, you know, really to struggle through something. Quite that's hard. right. And we will see in the coming days who manages to go that last mile in this match. And we'll be right back to wrap things up with Grandmaster Alex Lenderman. And we are back. Alex, uh, this has been great. Any, as we look back towards the match, um, any closing thoughts as we head into uh, what, <laughs> what obviously will be, if nothing else, an unpredictable conclusion of this World Championship match? Well, it's kind of interesting. I thought I was going to talk about the World Championship, but then I ended up talking about all these other topics that I was thinking about talking in my next interview even. So well, yeah, we'll come back to those. But is there anything from the World Championship that you wanted to highlight that you haven't uh, yet? Um, no, I think I uh, I basically covered everything I, I wanted. And uh, yeah, I think we had a very already quite in length discussion about a lot of the things. So I think at this point, uh, yeah, um, I think I said everything I wanted to say, I guess. Okay, well, you've been quite insightful, and uh, listeners, um, enjoy this. Enjoy these last two matches, these last two, however many games. Um, uh, it, it does feel like, I have to say, I mean, it would be fun if someone wins it in Classical. I know a lot of people don't like that the Rapid Tiebreaker, not a lot of people, but a certain subset don't even like that the Rapid Tiebreaker exists in a Classical World Championship, so there would be some purity if someone manages to win. But the way this match has gone, I just feel like it's destiny that we're gonna we're gonna reach some moment where the clocks are hanging in a rapid game, maybe even a blitz playoff, and it's just Armageddon. Armageddon. Exactly. Gets flagged. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> I said I wanted max drama last time, and so far it's it's followed that script. So why would it stop now? But um, Alex, uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, um, possibly for lessons or anything else, um, is there is there anything? Uh, what's the best way to do that? Uh, email Alex Lenderman, A-L-E-X, uh, Lenderman, L-E-N-D-E-R-M-A-N, 33 at hotmail.com. Um, and uh, you can also write to me on Facebook. Um, I'm Alexander Lenderman there, A-L-E-K-S-A-N-D-R, Lenderman on Facebook. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, so Great. I would say those are probably the best ways. Okay, and uh, I will link to both of those. And last question, Alex, I know you said you're not competing as much, but do you have any tournaments uh, firmly planned for uh, 2023 right now? Well, actually, I do. Uh, it's funny, I said I'm not competing as much, but actually, like, like, next couple of weeks, I actually am. I'm going to Seattle, actually, later today. I'm playing a tournament uh, in a PNWCC chess club uh, from Friday to Sunday this uh, weekend. I'm one of the invited players um so you're gonna miss DM. some of the drama <laughs> you'll be busy with your own games well i no i think oh it'll be overnight yeah so oh, yeah 
all right, tomorrow is not. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. But, okay, I usually watch the pod, uh, recaps anyway. So okay. Really, uh, um, I don't usually watch things live as much anyway. It's too stressful. Uh, like sometimes <laughs> my students are like playing games live, like my very high level students. And at some point I just cannot watch it. But, right. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, then I have another tournament, Metropolitan Open. open um, which is May 5 to 7 in uh, uh, Virginia. So I actually have a tournament back to back. And then I'll be coaching at the Scholastic event um, in Baltimore Elementary Nationals. And then I have an event at the end of May as well. So I'll actually, next few week, weekends, I'm actually uh, playing quite a bit, although I haven't played as much in the last like few months. I've been mostly playing online tournaments and training games. and smaller tournaments and things like that okay well good luck in the tournaments alex uh enjoy the recaps of the games and listeners we will be back uh next tuesday or wednesday with erwin lamie to take one last look back at whatever drama unfolds in these coming days um thanks again alex take care all right take care thank you Podcast Network.